Yes, it does. Thank you very much. In line for the NASDAQ market site, this is Fast Money. I am Brian Sullivan, in again for Melissa Lee. Hi, everybody. Your traders on the desk tonight are Steve Grasso, Karen Feynman, and Guy Adami. Also pleased to be joined by Dan Suzuki, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Richard Bernstein Advisors. Welcome, Dan. Tonight on Fast, it is official. Phase one of the trade deal with China signed. The Dow and S&P 500 hitting new record highs. We'll break down where we might go from here now that that is out of the way. Plus, a fight between meat and fake meat. There's a Beyond Meat and Shake Shack moving in vastly different directions today. What stock ultimately could come out the winner for your portfolio? And can you guess what company just passed Facebook to become the second most downloaded app in the world? We'll get you the answer a bit later on in the show. All right, it's a busy hour. We're going to kick things off, though, with Target missing the mark. A once red-hot retailer posting its worst day since November 2018 after it reported sluggish sales of electronics and toys during the holiday season. Target, which had been a big, bright spot not only for the sector but for the market in general, joins fellow retailers like Kohl's, JCPenney, Five Below, and L Brands, which all failed to meet holiday expectations. The XRT, the ETF that tracks the group, down more than 1% to kick off the year. Guy Adami. Yes, sir. Are these just... One-off misses, or do you think there are some cracks in the consumer beginning to show? No, I don't think it's an indictment on the consumer at all. I mean, I think that in this case, the one-off misses. We can have a consumer uh, conversation, but I don't think it's about Target. Look, the stock went from 80 to 130, effectively in a straight line, and finally valuation started to catch up to Walmart. Yes, comps were disappointing. You can't come out here and say they were not. However, they reiterated fourth quarter guidance, and they said margins are going to be better. So stock down 6% or 6.5%. Off this, I don't think it's a disaster at all. You don't need to go buy it tomorrow. But I got to tell you something. Given the run it's had, I didn't think today was all that bad, quite frankly. Okay, Karen, what about you? You've owned yep, it, obviously, today, not it. the yep. day you want. You buying more on the weakness? I'm going to buy more. I didn't buy more today. Usually I like to let it just settle in a little bit. I mean, I, I was definitely disappointed. And the thing, you know, guys said they'll still make their earnings, which just tells you they were going to beat if they had come in where they thought uh, on comp store sales. They would have beaten that number by a lot. The street was already expecting a beat. And so for them to say, well, we'll be within our guidance, that was disappointing. What Guy said, the margins were very good, so they sold more of the stuff that has better margins, less of the stuff that didn't. Did the street overreact? I think a little bit, not a ton. I mean, it lost one and a half multiples. It's, that wasn't at a crazy multiple before. So I do think it's attractive. I want to let it settle, settle in a little bit. I will buy more. I think it's an opportunity. I think they're very different than those other retailers, the JCPenney's, the Kohl's of the world. They're getting it right. They it's just, been the sweetheart, right? So, it's, so that's why it's outperformed. It is oversold, but to Karen's point, three-day rule, let it simmer a little bit, see where it adjusts, see where it levels off, wait for it to hold the low for that first day, and then wait a couple of days after that. I, I don't know. I mean, Walmart, Best Buy, maybe you take the weakness as an opportunity to buy those two names if they, if they sell off into earnings. We, we have seen, seen the ones that have been weak. retailers bounce back, though, Steve. I think five below you know, got crushed. Yeah, we've seen back. the ones that, but, but this has been one day bounce. But this has been such a favorite that you might, this might have to wait a little bit longer because there was so much money in it already. Those other names you're talking about, there was new money being put to work on a discount. There's a lot of money already in Target. 
Yeah, we, we look at things from a macro perspective. I would say that, you know, Target, there's a lot they've done to reposition themselves within the retail space amid all the disruption. But I think there are, you know, I'll take the other side of what Guy was saying. I think there are things to watch in the consumer space. I mean, if you think about it, what drives consumption? First of all, let's just look at the consumption number. Consumption, if you just look at the GDP prints, they, that peaked in 2018. In the summer of 2018, it's been slowing. Retail sales has been slowing. These things are decelerating. They're not falling off a cliff, but people need to take note that things are slowing. And what's going to drive the next leg forward? You know, do you have a job? Well, jobs growth in the U.S., we just got the payroll print that people liked. But jobs growth, people don't realize, is the slowest since 2011, since the recovery. And, by the way, they're working less hours. But but are jobs growing at a slower pace, Dan, because the economy's slowing or because we're running out of people? If there's nobody that, that needs a job or can get a job then you can't have growth. It's certainly a little bit of both. I mean, we just got the beige book out today that said there are a lot of labor shortages, but if you look at job openings, which comes from the JOLT survey... The JOLTs. I think that's a better indicator than the monthly jobs. With a lag, but yes. But it's actually... It's it's come back a little bit, but it's rolled over too. So jobs are slowing, and if you look at the other drivers, credit, access to credit, because if you don't have a job, maybe you're going to borrow, pay on a credit card. Your banks are actually tightening modestly their lending standards. So put all these things together along with the overall trend... I think you got to keep an eye on it. And here's where I'll agree with Dan, who disagreed with me. <laughs> I agree. I, I mean, I think people confuse, and I've said this for a long time. I'm not suggesting I'm right. It's just my opinion that people confuse the health with, of the consumer with their ability or want to spend. The U.S. consumer will always spend. We've learned that over the years. Doesn't mean they should be spending. And when you have an economy that's 73% driven by the consumer, and as long as consumer confidence stays at these levels with the stock market at all time highs, People will spend. The problem, I think the problem is you're in a sweet mistakes. spot. You're, you're in a. I shouldn't say the problem is the good thing is we're in a sweet spot. So to Brian's point, unemployment is at record lows or right there, right, right around record lows. So enough people have a job to keep the economy afloat, and there's not a lot of headwinds. Now, if the market sells off, people will equate their richness or their wealth, uh, wealthiness, if you will, with the where the stock market is. So if that comes in hard then you have a problem with what people perceive as their wealth. Agree 100%. And quickly, you saw that in October, November of last year when the market went down basically 19.5% in the course of a month and a half. Consumer spending stopped on a dime. And that's not coincidental. People look up and say, oh, wait a second, what's going on? Maybe I shouldn't be going on vacation and maybe I shouldn't be buying that Starbucks coffee. So it is extraordinarily sensitive, in my opinion, to the stock market. And when we talk about the consumer, again, we come back to this theme. We've talked about it a lot across the network. you got to know what you own. I know we talked about the XRT at the top. Here's my beef with the XRT. I'm going to give you guys a quiz. Are you ready? Do you know what the highest percentage weighted stock in the XRT is? You'll never. Anybody gets this, I will buy them dinner. Rite Aid. Yeah. It's Rite Aid. Followed by Grubhub and yeah, Children's but, Place. But the problem is they're, they're okay, all such small. They're all, they're all small. They're all I understand that. Right, right, so if you say I want to go to the RTH, yeah. which is another one, right. Amazon and Home Depot, two yeah. stocks, are 30%. The lesson is if you're going to bet on the consumer through an ETF, know what you own. Know what's in there. Know what stocks Well, maybe, maybe that's another lesson if you want to take this out further, is that if you like five or six companies, then buy five or six companies, make your own ETF, Instead of buying something else, because a lot of these names only have a very small percentage of those underlying. That's holders. my point, Karen. If let's yeah. say you own the RTH, right, and Home Depot misses, that's ten percent of the. All of a sudden, you're like, well, the rest of the stocks did well, but yeah, right. if your heaviest weighted stock doesn't do well, so individual yes. names, Target. Who else might you like? Um, well, Walmart also. 
right? I, um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't own Amazon. Uh, it's come in a fair amount, but I have to come in a lot more before I would own that. But, uh, you know, I like to pick a few and think that I can outperform the 100 mix of, you know, 1% each um, in the XRT. Hopefully I can. Uh, today, no, not definitely Yeah, not. but you've Being made a lot target. of money on Target. Target's yeah. well Target's above, worked. I'm sure, your dollar yes. average, right? I mean, it's got to but I, and I think there's upside from here, but I will let it settle in a little bit. Let it settle in a little bit. But uh, cracks in the consumer, something to watch. All this data, folks, we talk about on CNBC, ISM manufacturing, your eyes can roll back. Yeah. It's important because we're right at a key time for the economy and the market. All right, coming up, we're going to drill down deeper on oil. What ah. phase one of the trade deal means for the energy patch? The great no. Alima Croft, no, RBC, you're welcome. We'll be here. And later on... 75 billion reasons why investing giant BlackRock is doing just fine. Thank you very much. And be sure to watch us live and on the go if you want on your phone, on your Apple TV, the CNBC app. Download it today. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Let's talk about something we don't talk about maybe enough recently, and that is gold. Guy Adami, yes, gold sir. up 5% in a month, up 20% in a year. We talk about this potential, you know, slowdown, whatever. Why is gold catching such a bid? Yeah, it's interesting. And today on a day where you would think that the trade deal signing would be some reacceleration potentially of global growth, maybe that, maybe that sort of cloud is abated, you would think gold would have a retreat. No, Newmont Mining, by the way, was up 1.6% off a huge move. That coupled with the fact that bond yields continue to go lower. Remember that song, Things That Make You Go Home? Was that that uh, Mr. Hammer guy? Remember, was that him? That wasn't well, him. Well, that ma- wasn't him? <laughs> well, it makes me go home. And I think that I'll say it again. I think the gold market and the bond market are trying to tell the broader market something. Obviously, the S&P doesn't care. I get it. But you have to ask yourself, what does the gold market see that the rest of us don't? Well, they see central banks. You've hit on this a, a lot, too. And utilities led today. This was a sell-the-news event. Phase two is probably going to be, in, in Trump's words, after the election. So there's nothing really to keep shorties at bay right now. So you have a little bit of freedom in case earnings don't perform well. You have a little bit of freedom to short the market here. So I think we just saw a sell-the-news event. Okay. Also, the 10-year yield backing off a little bit as well. Which is, I mentioned, and I think that, you know, the, no. bond, the, the yield curve is flattening out a bit. I mean, listen, again, we talked about it for a few days now. The warning signs are there. There are 20 different macro indicators, metrics, whatever you want to say, that are all seemingly flashing red. Market doesn't care. I don't know what that exogenous event will be that will make it care. Didn't okay. it seem, though, that the deal was so vague? And so, I mean, phase well, it's one 94 what, pages long, the document is. Well, obviously, I have not had a chance to read it. I don't think the market, most of the market participants have had a chance to read it. Certainly, I haven't read it in its entirety. But sections of it, I think, are just so vague that... Like, yes, we agree that there's a point we have to discuss in the future, and we both agree it's I think important. it just clears the fact that phase one was done. Yeah, I, mean, I think it just I, I, it, it clears. very well taken care of. And I think that we saw the video, and we, it was sort of happening live in the afternoon, and we're thinking, well, the optics are good, though. Yes, mm-hmm. the deal itself may not be that sort of tight, but there's handshakes, there were smiles. It was good optics, maybe, for the market. Okay. But I think yes. Steve makes a good point. I mean, it's kind of a selling news event because what Karen was saying is that the actual meat of the deal, the, the little details that people were able to read through and that we got weren't actually that good. It actually opened the door for more tariffs, potentially, if the U.S. wanted to go down that route. So it's not a sort of seal the deal on no more tariffs, as maybe the market was expecting. I think that the, the point that Guy's making is what people should be very focused on is that there are a lot of sort of signals out there flashing red. And I think that's what the other commodity, the other markets are telling you. 
stocks don't care. Yet, if you look at the leadership, as Guy mentioned, or as, as Steve mentioned, you know, it was very defensive today. I think that people need to realize that, you know, you mentioned ISM earlier, 47, you know, 46 is the level that's generally associated with recessions. Like I talked about, uh, you know, these other indicators like jobs growth slowing. I think the market doesn't care, um, but I think that this is a momentum-driven market. This is one where the market, people are more bullish because the prices are going up, and I think that that's one where you have to, you should be selling a little bit into strength, de-risking, and buying things like gold. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation. I'm going to give you another number here. I like numbers. Three and a half percent. Hmm. That's the percent we are away from Dow 30,000, my friend. I probably just jinxed it, but the point is this. Get your hats. As the numbers get bigger, the percentages get smaller. Three and a half percent. All right. Is that right? Speaking of percentage gains, (laughs) let's talk about XPO Logistics. That stock soaring 17% on the news. They're exploring a possible breakup, sale, or something else. Jim Cramer just sat down with the company's CEO. And Jim joins us live from San Francisco. With, that was a heck of a graphic, Jim. I mean, here's the thing. XPO Logistics has been amazing for 10 years. It's made all these people rich. Seventh best performer, I think, in the last decade. Why do they want to change things? Well, look, it's been stuck at this one level for a long time. They bought back 35 million shares. It had been rated by a short seller, I think incorrectly. The stock came right back. Uh, And Brad Jacobs is a tremendous entrepreneur, and he's sick of it. He's sick of his company being as low as it is, knowing that if he were to come public again, he could get rid of a lot of his businesses, come come as a software, as a service company, and trade at twice what it's selling for. Yeah, it is. I mean, this is a company. Do you think it's just, Jim, that... People were ignoring sort of logistics and freight because they don't understand it. They're afraid of the trade war. Wall Street doesn't get the story. What do you think has been the reason why the stock Uh, has been stuck on the loading dock? mm. I like all those. I think that uh, it's also been uh, FedEx has cast a pull upon the whole group. Uh, I also know that uh, the short seller was saying that there were things that weren't kosher at the company. I think those were almost 100 percent lies. And uh, the stock really hasn't recovered the way I thought it would. But the most important thing is, is that the logistics business would be fantastic for uh, Intelligrated, which is owned by Honeywell. Uh, Zebra Technologies, I think they would kick the tires. It does look a little bit like what Shopify does. There will be people who, as I did to Brad, say, listen, why doesn't Amazon snap them up? So I think the stock being up just a, I don't know, a handful of points, 10 percent is uh, low bowling. But remember, he doesn't want to sell the whole company, but there are divisions embedded that as you said, are being obscured by other divisions that just seem like trucking companies, including one that he bought that is not getting any credit at all. Well, what you said he was frustrated, Jim. Was he coming in hot? Was he worked up that the street is just not getting the story? No, the analyst community is pretty Brad. bullish. Brad. Brad's a clinical guy. There's nothing emotional about If anything, I was like, hey, man, come on. I'm excited. You get, you should get more fired up. What, what Brad has done, though, is put together a company that, you, that in the last two years has done remarkably, and yet the stock has done nothing. I think he's tired of that. He wants to be able to show people what this company's really worth. You mentioned that they've got uh, logistics business. Well, you know what? Uh, I see research. Credit Suisse is calling it the Google of logistics. Well, geez, that's certainly not what the stock's multiple says. If you look at what FedEx paid for TNT, this stock would be a TNT, a second-rate operator, I might add, in Europe, which is a third-rate area to do business. And it's uh, worth twice as much as what this stock's worth now. Okay, so the full interview tonight on on MAD. I know, listen, I know tonight's going to be a big show. You're out west. I'm excited, and I know you are, Jim, about tomorrow. Is it is it unfair? We got Katrina Lake tonight, Brad, of course. 
So how excited are you for tomorrow spending the day with Satya Nadella, the trillion dollar man? It hasn't happened since uh, 1986 when I flew out to see Steve Ballmer. Uh, who ended up being the CEO to say, hey, you know what? We ought to do business together, my friend. He was been the business manager of the Harvard Crimson when I was the editor-in-chief or president. So it's been that long since I've been there, and boy, has it ever changed. Sacha is, I've only met him once. Uh, I've always wanted to just sit down and interview him. He's an incredible visionary. What a job he's done. I cannot wait to get up to Seattle, which is about what I'm going to do in about 35 minutes. But we'll let you get on that plane. Safe travels, my friend. We're really looking forward to tomorrow. The guy totally invented the company from Steve Ballmer. No knock on Steve, but Sacha's done a great job. Oh, he's amazing. Thank you so much. All right, we'll see you tomorrow. Safe travels, Jim. Thank you very much. Of course, Mad Money tonight as well. You got Katrina Lake, a stitch fix. You got Brad Jacobs, big show with Jim at 6 p.m. Eastern time. All right, tomorrow, guys, this is big. I mean, Microsoft, is anybody... Could Satya Nadella be the CEO of the decade? Should be. I mean, mm. if you think about it, IBM, people talk about IBM legacy business, this, this huge aircraft carrier in the middle of the ocean, impossible to turn it around. Well, guess what? Microsoft was pretty much the same company, and they figured it out under his leadership. So the knock on Microsoft at these levels, if there's a knock at 28, forward, 28 times forward earnings, it's getting expensive. But you know what? It's seemingly growing into that valuation every single quarter. You had a negative head. We always talk about price is truth on the show. When you had a negative headline today, the stock does nothing but go up. It was green on the day. It popped through a major resistance point, was 150. It's popped there. It's above 160. It's a different company now. So they're moving into what they should be moving into, and they're moving aggressively there. So they're, they're going to where the puck is going to be, and I'm staying long. It is. Dan, from a macro perspective, not individual equities, I understand that. Is there any concern at Richard Bernstein Advisors that, and we talked about it on The Exchange at 1 o'clock Eastern time today, that too many people are buying the same 5 or 10 stocks? The gap in weight on the top 10 versus the other 490 in the S&P 500 has never, ever been this high, almost not even close. The worst time was 1999. Yeah, I think it wouldn't be uh, a worrisome sign if the profit percentage uh, market share was actually going up as well. Um, the problem is, I think Morgan Stanley just put out a note that sh- sh- highlighted, you know, their, their market cap percentage has been increasing, uh, yet the profit percentage has actually been decreasing. I think that's a worrisome sign. I think that you haven't seen anything like that since uh, over the last couple of decades, since the tech bubble. So I think what that tells you is that you are getting a lot. Of, it's not Microsoft specifically, but you are getting a lot of bullish sentiment that's driving the moves here. And I think that's something uh, that is echoed in pretty much any sentiment positioning indicator that you look at. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. I mean, the ones that work and just keep working, right? Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon. But, how, how long but I don't know. Paid? I mean, I own some value stuff. It just, you know, nobody wants to own it. It doesn't matter that it's cheap. Even if you talk about this increasing, you know, valuation on those top five or top 10 percent. At yeah. the moment, values just I think the risk reward the risk point. reward is getting worse and worse. So I think as a prudent investor, what you want to do is anything where their profit dynamics are getting worse, you want to sell those, sell into strength on those names. And if you want to accumulate, you buy the ones that are actually starting but to. But just ter- remember, you know, I think. The, and again, I don't want to be guy Adami. A, 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 you don't want to be guy Adami. <laughs> man, speak for yourself. I would love to be guy Adami in my next life. If I'm that good in this life, I'll come back as you. Uh-huh. Um, I don't want to beat a dead horse. I know I say this a lot, but. You know, when you buy and sell an ETF, a lot of people, I think, think the underlying equities are being sold. They're not. The only time that the underlying equity is actually purchased is when the ETF is created 
and goes public as itself. And then, of course, you give the stock to a custodian. So we're trading these trillions of dollars a day of assets above the market. Not really reflective of the actual. I mean, they're sort of based on the price, but you're sort of trading paper. So this is in a way. And I don't want to get all weird and wonky, but at the same time, I do wonder if and when people decide Microsoft, Amazon, Apple are overvalued, they start to sell. What happens to the well, other few? You had a very stocks. interesting conversation today on one of the seven shows that you hosted, <laughs> talking you. about exactly the six this. best. The right, the inflows <laughs> into BlackRock, correct? Seventy-five and, billion last quarter buying passive, but that means more money goes to the big names, and the big names keep getting bigger. And is that because their business is better, no. or simply because they're big and they get more money? You you know the answer to that. I mean, passive investing—it's great when everything's going higher. My concern, and I've said it for a while, when passive becomes non-passive and active, it ain't going to be active on the way up. It's going to be people getting out. And I will tell you from doing this for 30-something years, markets go down a lot faster than they go up. You know, when you look at Microsoft, though, and you you start to talk about that number, I equate it to the way Apple is with the services income. When you're looking at how many billions they're making, they're closing that gap between hardware and the service income. If you look at Microsoft, the personal computer computing as a segment of revenue is $45 But when you look at Intelligent Cloud... You're looking at a number here that's $39 billion. So when you say, how long can it go? They're migrating into a different area where we're not so sure where the margins are going, but the margins are sustainable at this point. So if you're telling I mean, me it becomes... on Microsoft. No, I'm talking about everybody. But I brought up services, too. So everyone is going into the cloud. So it's creating what they used to have in one terminal, one spot, and they're creating tentacles off of that that they're getting paid so off you of believe, the cloud. you believe, Steve, we'll go to break in a second, that that... That, that big push into the biggest ones is not just an accident. They deserve it. Well, they deserve it. Look at what everyone, every, everyone pushed back on the, on the valuation on Amazon when the stock was $150. And everyone started to sniff around AWS. No one understood it. There were people that said it was going to become a commoditized business. And here we are thousands of dollars yeah, later in the stock. Can I ask one thing? Yeah. If you, don't, you want to ask me a yes, question? Yes, I do. Oh. When you were talking about f- money flowing in, were you talking about money flowing into the Black Rocks of the world or money flowing into the ETFs, ETFs. from BlackRock? The, t- the top three, when you look at State Street, BlackRock, and whatever, you know, the third one. So all the, the money, they just keep getting bigger and bigger. I'm not, knock, again, not knocking them at all. I just worry if everyone's buying the same stuff, sit tight with these thoughts mm-hmm. because we've got something else going on Stop. in Washington, D.C. The articles of impeachment are being signed by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in Washington right now. Let's take a look in. Once the Speaker is done with signing, there will be a physical move of that document from the House to the Senate. It will be hand-delivered to the Senate, where the trial will begin at some point. Obviously, a lot of disagreement about how the trial will look, whether witnesses will be called, what witnesses could be called as well, the trade deal on one hand, and the impeachment articles being signed on the other. It was a busy day, an odd day, even by D.C. standards. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Energy stocks having a rough start to the year after a pretty good finish to last year. One of the ETFs, the XLE, that tracks the space time on the 1%. Broader market continues to climb, so 
What does it need to get a little energy back in this space? Bring in our friend Halima Croft, RBC's Global Head of Commodity Strategy, to break it all down. Uh, ju- I know you just back from Abu Dhabi. That's right. Literally awful plane. A little you what day is lag, it? What's, yes. It's okay. You look great. I know you're going to nail this. Under eye concealer. Yes. Uh, uh, I got it on, too. Don't worry about it. All right. So here's the thing. Um, let's talk about oil because, from what I understand, we had some rocket attacks in Iraq. We had the killing of Soleimani. Right. And yet oil continues to go down. How oversupplied is this world right now? I think once President Trump said all is well, the market faded geopolitical risk. I think right now they're focusing on, you know, what the supply picture looks like. What is OPEC going to do? I mean, the trade war, you know, that's still a little bit in the ether. You know, it wasn't as fulsome an agreement as people maybe were expecting. But one thing I'll say is that we had all the concerns about trade war last year. It was really a ceiling on the oil market. But if you look at Chinese demand in 2019, it held up relatively well. I mean, it was 390,000 barrels of growth year on year. That was in line with previous years before we had trade war concerns. So we have the situation where the sentiment is very tied to the trade war concerns, but the physical market in China is seemingly not. Why not? Well, I mean, what's interesting is we have healthy demand for things like jet fuel, gasoline. That held up in China this year. Where we had real softness in the oil market, in emerging markets, India. And that was a problem for the oil markets. OEC demand also, not fabulous. But if you look at year on year, the oil market demand, about a million barrels. We're expecting that for next year as well. So I think what's really interesting is the trade war was a really big sentiment story, not as much physical market story. You know, just back, what's the mood? What's the mood in Abu Dhabi where you are? What's the mood about the U.S.? What's the mood about the trade war? What's the mood about sort of demand and where Iraq goes? Iraq's a disaster. What was so interesting was when we took off from JFK, the missiles were flying and people thought, are we going into the third Gulf War? When we landed, people were like, "Okay, it's over in terms of the market. In Abu Dhabi, it was kind of a wait and see. There were some out there, like General Jones, saying deterrence has been reestablished. The Iranians are not going to do anything else. This was a good thing. And in fact, maybe we'll see regime change in Iran. And there were others that said, look, the shadow war will continue. The Iranians are not done. They are under crippling sanctions. And we're still going to have significant turbulence in the Middle East. So two very distinct views. And Iraq remains very, very messy. I'm not asking you to play stock market here. That's not what we're doing. But big cap, all these integrated big cap names. Exxon Mobil's like at a five, six-year low, pushing towards levels we last saw in October. What's the problem? Stock market all-time high. I mean, is it just their business models are flawed at this point? I mean, I think there's a, a whole host of things. But one of the things, actually, that we've heard a lot about in Abu Dhabi at this conference was the broader concern about ESG, the broader concerns about climate change, and the fact that are these companies, you know, should we even be investing in them? There was a lot of discussion about what does the future look like, where is going to be the appetite to invest in these companies when everyone is thinking about climate change, ESG. But let me ask you something. You talked about demand not being bad, right? Yeah. China holding up. So what about the supply side? Because oil is where it was two-plus years ago. No, I mean, I think one of the things that we're really seeing is is that, you know, U.S. production has continued to hold up. And this is going to be a very interesting year, and it makes it very difficult for OPEC's planning process. There are a variety of forecasts out there for what U.S. production growth will look like. And so I think that is going to be a key linchpin of this market this year. 
OPEC is meeting in March. They normally just meet twice a year. They're now having three meetings this year because I think they need to have a rapid response mechanism depending on where the U.S. picture looks like. But again, they will admit that something they came out and said, they are very concerned about misjudging the U.S. supply picture this year. What, what, do you, what are the odds that the red line statement? So, the, so President Trump's red line is loss of U.S. US lives. lives. Yes. So what are the odds in your mind? Do you think so when, when Trump said, everything's okay, we're good, this is neutralized. Are the, uh, did the uh, Iranians get the memo on that? Or is there, can we see this ratchet up? And if so, do you just sell any pop that you see in the energy supply because it is a head fake? I mean, one thing to really watch is what happens with the upcoming parliamentary elections in Iran. If we have a hardline victory, I think we're likely looking at elevated tensions. If the moderates, though, win... Perhaps there is a potential for an off-ramp. But sanctions remain key. I mean, they are really struggling under the weight of these sanctions. I mean, you're looking at inflation at 35%. GDP is supposed to contract again by 10% this year. They are really facing what they see as economic warfare. So as long as they remain under those sanctions, I think the risk of, again, the shadow wars, the rockets flying at these bases in Iraq, something serious could happen still. This is not done. So, uh, you know, the point you were making on China is interesting. A lot of that demand, from what I've read, uh, some of that demand has come from inventory build. And so what, are you concerned at all that they kind of ratchet down as they kind of draw down those inventories? Or do you think they're just going to continue to ramp up? I mean, what I think is interesting is we were seeing the inventory builds. Because, again, if you think about, you know, China takes barrels from places like Iran, from Venezuela. There was some stockpiling. But we actually see now inventory draws in China. So this isn't just the case of them stockpiling. So, again, when we look at the Chinese market this year, we're not saying it's spectacular growth mm-hmm. like we saw, you know, a decade ago. But we think it's solid growth. We think where you need to be watching, though, for the demand picture is actually India. India. Again, we'll save that for another segment. Yes. Well, I don't, your next world trip. Next world trip. I'm I going know. to Saudi Arabia next month. So. Well, get, listen, Halima, thank you for coming on. I know you've been flying over the place. Get some rest. We'll thank see you. Again you. Soon. Halima Croft, RBC Capital Markets. All right, coming up, Shake Shack and Beyond Meat moving in very opposite directions today. We're going to find out why. Railroad giant CSX posting some nice gains this week out of its earnings. We're going to find out how options traders are getting ready for those results and as we head out, a more somber look Capitol Hill. House articles are being delivered from the House to the Senate to kick off the trial for the initial impeachment. It's literally a hand delivery. It's happening now. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back. Let's take you back down to Capitol Hill, where House members have been hand-delivered the articles of impeachment in the Senate. Elon Moy joining us now again from Capitol Hill. Elon. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is speaking now on the Senate floor. And before she signed these articles this evening, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that Congress was crossing a threshold of history because this delivery marks the moment that the Senate trial to determine whether President Trump should be removed from office can begin. We saw the delivery uh, being carried out by the seven House managers who will be responsible for prosecuting uh, the case 
for impeachment in the Senate. Those same seven House managers will return tomorrow morning to formally read the articles of impeachment on the Senate floor. Then tomorrow we will also see some more ceremonial steps. We'll see uh, Chief Justice John Roberts sworn in to preside over the case. You'll also see all 100 U.S. senators sworn in as jurors in this trial and an official summons sent to President Trump and a time named for him to come and make his case or his representatives to make his case. So, as you said, Brian, today was an extraordinary day in which we saw both trade and impeachment take center stage here in Washington. You will see the same thing happen again tomorrow because amidst all of the uh, beginnings and the procedures around impeachment, the Senate is also planning to vote on the USMCA trade deal tomorrow. They're trying to clear the deck before the trial begins in earnest next week and all legislative business sort of falls by the wayside. Alon, quick question. I know you've touched on it a little bit. What's our timeline here? I think it's a very confusing process. What's the best estimation of a timeline going forward? Well, the timeline is sort of all over the place. The White House is adamant that this trial will be wrapped up within two weeks, likely before the president gives his State of the Union address to Congress. However, uh, if history is any judge, it is likely to last longer than that. So if you go back to the Clinton impeachment trial, uh, that trial lasted for five weeks. So the time frame here is uh, quite up in the air, still very fluid, but you can expect to see a lot of debate over what the trial will look like. We'll have more information once we know whether or not the Senate will call any witnesses um, and about the rules of engagement going forward. But I expect this to last at the bare minimum two weeks, but perhaps much longer than that. All right. Elon Moy in Capitol, on Capitol Hill. Elon, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. All right. Let's talk impeachment in the markets. Guy Dami, yes, uh, you know, we forget. Listen, we had the sign. What a bizarre day it was, right? For America, for the markets, we have on one hand this clapping and the GOP's sort of victory lap around the trade deal. Then we've got, on the other hand, the signing of the articles of impeachment there. I know the, it looked like the, the House Speaker was you know, signing, it, signing those documents. Does it change anything in them? Why has the market reacted to the impeachment storyline? I don't think the market particularly cares. And this is not a political show, and I'm not necessarily going down this road, but I think that when we cut to uh, Senator Pelosi with a grin on her face, and yes, I'll use the word grin, with multiple pens, I mean, this is not a time for levity. Oh, no, that was representative. Anyway, you understand my point. Just call what you want. I mean, there was a smile and there was something on her face. And maybe she was just uncomfortable, but the optics of it were really bad. I mean, this is not a time for levity or enthusiasm, this is a time, I mean, this is a somber time, regardless of your political leanings. To answer your question, market doesn't seem to care. The market cares to our earlier point about the Fed having our back and these inflows are at record levels. That's really what it comes down to. And the market doesn't care because for now, there's a very small percentage chance that he's actually convicted in the Senate. So he, he was impeached and the odds of you having 20 Republicans cross over that line and give them enough votes to actually convict, then, you know, if you start to see some more information coming Mm. out, we start to see whatever witnesses that are called, then the markets would get antsy. Right now, it's less than a 10% chance. We're keeping it 
on the markets. That, you know, not, again, there's plenty of, a lot of other shows and networks that can do the policy. There's less of a 10% chance that he's, so the markets are not going to care until Reaction, that number exactly, becomes a little bit bigger. Would you agree with that, Dan, from a steep perspective that the market just doesn't believe things are going to actually get down that path? Yeah, I think there's a general, there's been a general assumption for a while that this is dead on arrival once it reaches the Senate. So I think that, you know, you're going to get this political show. It's an election year. You want to make Trump look bad, but ultimately you're not going to get anything of substance. Although I think that people should be aware that, you know, we have an, a, a more emotional president than normal. If this, this could lead to a flurry of more emotional tweets, and that can drive markets. But, you know, from RBA perspective, we try to focus less on that type of thing and yep. focus more on the fundamentals. Okay, there you go. Good, good stuff there. On the a market very, reacts, uh, though, to the, pro, you know, we saw Sanders sort of seem to get some momentum and a sell-off in the healthcare stocks, only to be turned around today by good UNH numbers. Yeah, and and you're and you're hearing some, you know, Sanders and others basically say we need to end the fossil fuel industry or fracking or parts of it when it's mm-hmm. millions of jobs and contributes hundreds of billions or trillions to the economy. It's, maybe that's more of a market risk. Anyway, we'll keep we'll move on. Coming up, China is basically taking over your kids' phones. TikTok story next. All right, welcome back. Call it the big battle over big beef. Two analyst calls on two stocks, one on the fake meat side, Bernstein downgrading Beyond Meat to a market perform. The analyst says the plant-based meat maker is just about maxed out its sales growth, he said. Meantime, on the real meat side, Goldman Sachs reiterating its buy rating on Shake Shack. Analysts are excited about potential new menu innovations and the chain's partnership with Grubhub. So let's dig in on these two calls, Steve. Pick your side. My, my uh, side is Shake Shack. I am long Shake Shack. I bought I didn't adhere to my own uh, three-day rule that my good friend Gary Berman has pushed me into. I bought it in day one, so I was underwater. I'm above water right now. I think that they do have some international opportunities for themselves. And I think the disruption that everyone thought with the sole third provider with Grubhub, I don't think that came to play. And the Goldman Sachs has stated that as well. I do think when, when Goldman makes a call, People listen. When people say it's got an 80% upside, I'm still on the name. I think the, na- I think the name can get easily to mid-80s. I'm staying long. I'm not going to offend anybody directly, Guy Adami, but if you're the Bernstein analyst downgrading Beyond Meat, do, do you think anyone's going to listen? I mean, the stock did move down, but I do wonder. That's a momentum stock. Do analyst calls matter for stocks like that? Not necessarily. I mean, I admire them for making a call. I'm not necessarily sure. Listen, at the end... Momentum trumps a lot of different things, and it might happen here, but at least they're making a call on a stock that has had a very significant run off those recent lows. I'm with Steve, though. I mean, you go back and look at Shake Shack. This stock went from $30 to basically $105 in a straight line. The move we've seen over the last, I don't know, month and a half, two months, is basically a retracement of that entire move, a 50% retracement. I think Goldman Sachs is probably right. Yes, I understand valuation is ridiculous. But this is a name that I think could have significant upside as they get into earnings, I think, in early March. Okay, good discussion there. Let's move on from the big battle over beef to the Internet. The kids these days, they love their TikTok. And that app reaching a milestone that could mean it is time maybe ticking for other companies like a Facebook. Julia Borston is live in L.A. with these details. Julia? 
Brian, that's right. Chinese-owned TikTok surpassing Facebook, becoming the second most downloaded app worldwide last year. It's behind only WhatsApp, according to Sensor Tower, which tracks the Apple and Google app stores. Now, TikTok downloads reached an all-time high in the fourth quarter with nearly 220 million installs. That's a 24 percent increase over the third quarter and 6 percent growth year over year. And in the U.S., TikTok is growing in e- even faster. In the U.S., Apple App Store alone downloads grew 83% over the prior year to nearly 10 million just in the fourth quarter. Now, TikTok has the advantage of not just having a huge user base, but having a very engaged one. U.S. consumers on Android phones spent more time watching TikTok videos last year than they did streaming video from Amazon Prime Video, according to App Annie, which is a mobile data analytics company. And the Financial Times reports that now TikTok is reportedly working to explore a curated content feed with posts from media companies and popular TikTok creators, something similar to Snap's Discover section. This could give brands a safe space for their ads and also enable TikTok to charge higher ad rates. Now, TikTok would not comment on that report that a curated feed is in the works, but they did tell me that they are working with publishers and top TikTok creators to try to help them generate revenue through, of course, advertising. Guys, back over to you. All right, Julie. Julie, thank you very much. Steve, I know we've talked about Snapchat. Snap, you like it. It was your fast pitch the other day. Is TikTok a threat to Snapchat? I I think they're all a snap because you only have so many eyeballs, so many hours of the day. My kids are, are, are on Snapchat constantly, but they're on TikTok. Uh, it, which seems to be an equal amount. But Snapchat is on a path to, quote-unquote, profitability. So hopefully we can get there. And I think most people have bet against Snapchat. So why I think TikTok and other apps can be a headwind, I think there was so much negativity thrown on Snapchat. Everyone worries about the way it's bounced. But they were talking about the stock just kind of falling off into the abyss and Facebook taking it, t- taking everything that was good about Snapchat, mm. stealing it, putting it into their Instagram. That didn't happen. I'm staying long Snapchat right okay. now, and I think Fair there's enough. a lot of upside still. I'm staying long Facebook. I mean, if you looked at what, what is the most downloaded app, right? WhatsApp, and then TikTok, and then Facebook, and then Messenger, right? The stock, I mean, the valuation of the stock here, it's hit an all-time high after it took a while to do it. Um, but the valuation here is still attractive, and uh, I think there's tremendous growth and cash flow, and I still like it here. Yeah, I'm with Steve quickly on Snapchat. Dan Nathan's also talked about this. You know, you just had Cowan upgraded, Bernstein upgraded, I think both $20 price targets. Yes, the stock has had a significant run off the bottom, but this is one of those names that can overextend to the upside, and I think that overshoot's probably going to be towards levels that Steve's been talking about, the low 20. So I think you can stay with Snap here. I understand what Karen's saying about Snapchat's up well. 222% in 12 months. Wow, what a run that has had. And basically just back to the IPO price, a little bit above it there. Exactly. You know, it's funny, these kids, they're ne- no studying, no reading. Right. Just That's TikTok an okay. And, See, they anyway, work at okay. Get off my lawn, That's an okay boomer right there. Come on, come on. Come Shares on. of CSX, they're moving higher. We're going to talk about CSX and the rail trade coming up. On Fast Money, we're live at the NASDAQ and back after this. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the transports. They're chugging along pretty nicely, up 3% in the last week. Ahead of the big slate of earnings. It all kicks off tomorrow after the bell. CSX, stock within striking distance of the level it gapped down from on disappointing tape back in July. And over in the options market, traders are betting tomorrow's report might be the catalyst to kick off a run back to those highs. Mr. Michael Coe is in San Francisco with the action on CSX. Riding the rails, Mike. 
Yeah, so CSX, you know, when we were taking a look at the volume in this earlier today, we saw that calls were outpacing puts by about 4 to 1 on face value. That might seem bullish. But some of that was actually profit-taking on the 72.5 calls. People were selling those calls, which have nearly tripled in the last nine days. The trade that interested me was based on the implied move, which is about 4%. Now, that implied move of 4% is actually less than the 4.2% that it has averaged over the last eight quarters, including that disappointing earnings result I think that you were alluding to earlier. The trade that I saw was a buyer of the January 75 puts. They paid $1.20 for 500 of those, and they also purchased 25,000 shares of this stock for 75.48. When you put that together, that's synthetically equivalent to having bought the 75 straddle. When you buy a straddle, you're betting on volatility. That's what this trader is betting, that the stock will be more than 4% higher or lower by Friday when these options expire. Okay, Michael Cole, Mike, thank you very much. Looking at CSX there. For more options action, of course, always tune in to that full show at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next are your final trades. Steve Grasso, why don't you kick off our final trades of the evening, sir? Shake Shack, it's 25% off the bottom. I'm staying long. Doesn't mean that you have to. You could take some profits. No one's going to look down on you. Yes, uh, yesterday, Delta Airlines. Hopefully, those same tailwinds will help American Airlines. They'll report next week. Dan? I say buy China. I think that the data is starting to look better. It's probably the most levered if you think that global growth is going to pick up. And it's probably trading at 34% discount to the U.S. Mr. Adami? New my mind, it keeps doing its thing, Brian Sullivan. Thank you very much, guys. <laughs> Thank you all for tuning in. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. 